Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Good to see you. Thanks for being here this morning. Nobody's in the splash zone this morning. It's nice. When I talk, sometimes I spit. I think you guys have figured that out. That works. Uh, Glad that you're here. If you're watching online or on replay, we're glad that you are doing so as well. For those of you who made it out in person on NFL Playoff Sunday, congratulations. Nice job. Extra gold sticker for you. We're on part four of a series called This Time Around. It's a series on Resolve. It's part four of four, meaning it's the end. And I did notice at the very beginning of this year in our very first service, uh, we had a lot of people show up. It was like, we call it New Year's Resolution Sunday. It's like, ah, New Year's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to church. And we had a lot of new faces and it was great. And I also, in that sort of, if you're new, I did this spiel, if you're new, you know, try not to make a decision. You wouldn't go to a restaurant one time and make a decision off. You'd, you'd try and check it out a few times and, and see what, because you could always, you know, get lucky and be awesome. Uh, give us a series basically, um, and then kind of make you an educated decision as a part of that. And and that might be where you're at. This might be part four. And and this is the, the time where you go, great. I, I fulfilled my obligation to you. It's been great. We'll see you. Uh, that's totally uh, acceptable and, and understandable. Thank you for sticking it out uh, with us. But uh, we, uh, we are finishing this thing up. It's been a series on resolve. Resolve being a little bit heightened sense of resolutions. Everybody kind of came through the new year and probably did some sort of a resolution. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this for an extended period of time until this date or until this weight. And then I, I, I move on to the next thing. But resolve is a little bit different. It's, a, it's something that it consumes us a little bit more. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, we, we've said this. Um, it requires a lot from us. And we have to evaluate if it's actually worth it. It needs to be something that's worthy of doing, Um, which ironically is the exact same criteria that my wife uses to evaluate when I propose that we take the kids out for a sit-down restaurant, right? We don't do it that often. Uh, It's going to be a lot from us, (laughs) require a lot from us. uh, And we have to kind of evaluate if it's worth it. And usually it's not. So that's how that works. So then drive-through, it happens. So... uh, but the, the idea then behind the resolve or the question that we asked that we kind of wrestled with was, was simply this, that what area in your life, um, in your personal evaluation of your life, uh, needs some resolve this time around? And when I say this time around, it can be as simple as this year, this time around the sun, right? Or perhaps you're the kind of person who's going into a new season, uh, a second season uh, of marriage. Uh, it's a, either a new marriage or I'm, you know, uh, this season in this upcoming season with my current wife, who I'm still married to or husband or whatever, um, or I'm raising kids this time or a new job or, or some sort of a shift, some sort of a change. What's going to be, what's going to be an area of resolve? And here's the thing about resolve. Um, there are people that you respect immensely who have uh, resolved in a certain area of their life to do things. And there's something about that decision that impacts you, that you respect immensely. You, you say to yourself, I don't struggle with those same sort of things. It's not, that's not an addiction that I have, but their resolve to not do that again or to stop or to start always doing that. Um, I, I wouldn't make that, I don't have the same convictions, but I can respect the level of resolve. It's something that we respect, even if it um, has nothing to do with kind of, t- kind of religious thing. Although I think there is 
a, a religious angle to it that we are going to go through. So I, I also said that it happens on a personal level and a corporate level. I can't kind of speak to your resolve personally, um, but I, as kind of the the mouthpiece of this organization and this church and the board has kind of made me the kind of person who's up in the front that, that talks about this kind of thing. Um, if you're a part of ESIC and ESIC's home for you and, and a natural question around this time of year, be like, what's, what's the plan? What's the vision? What are we doing this year? What's the moving forward. And every January for the last couple of years, I've done this. Here's the strategy. Here's the, here's the point. And so uh, for 2023, my goal is that our resolve would be simply to help be a church that helps you find your people, helps you grow spiritually and to make a difference. Find your people, grow spiritually, make a difference. My hope is at the end of the year, um, you have, will have heard me said over and over again, here's the thing that we say around here, right? Find your people, grow spiritually, make a difference. Um, and by 2024, January, you're like, dude, let's move on to something new because it feels like you've been beating this drum for a really long time. Um, so uh, I hope that that's true. So the first two weeks or, or parts, really parts two and three of the series have been about finding your people uh, and, and about growing spiritually. And you can go back and listen to some of those. But today we're going to be talking about making a difference, making a difference. Now, when I sat down in this, I, I knew that this would be probably the hardest of the talks to deliver. Um, not because there's not enough material to kind of talk about this, but because almost like there's too much material. There's too many angles. This kind of a topic is very noisy in our society, meaning you are inundated with messages to make a difference or you can make a difference all of the time. In all of the documentaries, we celebrate people who have made a difference. In stories that we share via social media, it's a lot of times people who have done something to sort of make a difference. You're giving invitations to donate, to text money to this number, to do this organization. Uh, from nonprofits, you can do this. You can make a difference simply by showing up, by, by serving, by giving, by doing something. So like, you're, you're not like, this is not new territory that somebody's like, you should resolve to sort of make a difference. So in what angle or what sort of perspective, uh, what can I bring to the table that's sort of unique uh, in that way to this perspective? Of, does, does the way of Jesus, which is what we said, the reason we gather together is to discuss what it would look like to live in the way of Jesus, offer anything new in the area of you should resolve to make a difference? I think that it does. Um, and so that's what we're going to be spending a little bit of time on um, today. Um, we, we said in our Advent series uh, in December uh, that one of the messages or one of the core messages of uh, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they sat down to write their perspective of who Jesus was and what he taught, um, they didn't sit down to be like, I can't wait to be in the Bible and, and start writing. That had no, there was no Bible. That was not a motivation for them. What was the motivation for them? I need to talk about what I saw and what I heard and who Jesus was because for them, their conviction was the, simply this, that the world is better off because of Jesus. And we know this because when the angels appeared to the shepherds and to the wise men and the message early on is, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let heaven and earth rejoice. You know, all this kind of things. There is today in the town of Bethlehem, a savior has been born. His name is Jesus. The government, the, 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 you know, the government will be upon his shoulders. We'll call him Prince of Peace. All of these things are happening for them 
for what they saw and who they and what they knew about Jesus, the world would be a better off place because Jesus had arrived, right? And as Christians, this is kind of a core principle uh, for us. If, if, if you identify as a Christian, then this kind of resonates with you. If you're not a Christian, then you're still on the fence maybe about this. Although for the most part, you would see this and be like, I think Jesus was a contributing member of you know society and, and history and, and whether or not you believe son of God thing is kind of up for debate. But uh, it's not really all, all that far off to think about this. And if this is true about Jesus, uh, then when he commissions the church to be the hands and feet of him in his absence and to go and kind of continue his ministry and continue spreading this world, go and you know make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 28, uh, or uh, Acts chapter two, uh, what we see then is um, uh, the Tri-Cities, by implication, kind of work this way down the way that the math works out, the Tri-Cities should be better off because of East Lake, because East Lake is in it, right? So, I can't really control what the, the church, capital C church. I can only control my particular expression of it. So is the Tri-Cities better off because Eastlake's in it? And, and this is a grid by which I wrestle with and, and want to work through and, and a motivating thing. This is a question that is up in my office on a wall that kind of resonates with me. And as our leadership team kind of sits in that and dwells in it, are we, is it, is what are what we do? And is our people, do, do the, Random people in the Tri-Cities think that East Lake is, or the Tri-Cities is better off because East Lake is in it. And then let's bring it closer to home for you personally, because you're the one that's here. You're, you're not thinking about it through the lens of a church. You're, you're, you've got your own needs and your own thing. Like your own pressing needs are at what is at the forefront of your mind, as it should be. So then the question for you is your community, your circle of influence, right? Your family, your classroom, if you're a student, uh, your, 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 your workplace, uh, if you're an employee somewhere, your, your um, employees, if you're a boss or supervisor, your community, circle of influence, your family should be better off because you're in it. And this isn't like, please don't hear this as uh, like thin, cheap, uh, make a difference in the world. I'm saying if you take the implications of Jesus' way of doing life seriously, then as a result of that, this should be true. This should be true. They should be better off because you're in this relationship. So then the question becomes, are they? Are they better off? Which is then kind of a, why should I listen to anything that you have to say? Why why should resolving to make a difference be a priority in my life? What, What difference does that make? Is this true for you? Can you look at this and be like, this is true? So um, I mentioned that one of the books that has uh, inspired this series is a reading uh, by a guy named David Brooks, who wrote a book called The Second Mountain. Two mountains in life. The first mountain you go up is like all the things that you think are success and, and going to provide meaning for your life. Um, so financial independence, uh, jobs, you know, names, uh, letters after your name, uh, healthy marriage, that kind of thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden you get to the top and you realize like some of that's good and it's been healthy, but there's also like something more, something's missing from this. And so I'd, you, you engage then on a second, or, or you're kicked off the first mountain because of tragedy or loss of a job, loss of a child, loss of a marriage. Then you're on the second mountain. And then that second mountain, it's all, it's all like kind of deeper stuff. It's like, it doesn't mean that you, you know, financial independence isn't a thing, but for what reason, right? Um, uh, what's the point of, of this? Second mountain people operate a little bit differently. They, they don't keep their options open. They fully commit to things. They commit themselves to other people and to other uh, outside of themselves. And they don't keep their options open. It's not about self. It's about, it's about the giving of self in a way. And so for him, if you read that book, and I'll save you uh, 20 bucks and, and 10 hours of your time, um, there are four convictions that he would say you need to kind of resolve. He, he doesn't use the words resolve. That's my words. But that you need to make commitments to. One is your marriage, uh, your vocation, your job. 
um, your faith or philosophy of life, uh, and then finally your community. And uh, that that last one, when I was reading through those things, and I was I knew that this was the direction I was going to go to. He began to quote a lot from a, uh, a book that I had been given a while back, uh, about ten years ago, uh, by somebody in the church who who was a thinker in this way, and and said, "This is a good read. You need to read this." And I, I and he's doing all these quotes. And I'm like, I have that book on my bookshelf, and I pulled it out this week, and I began to look at it, and I realized that. When I was reading that book, we were in the early stages of planting our church, that we were in that phase where we had two trailers and we would show up at Southbridge High School at six in the morning and there would be a team of volunteers, 20 or 30 people that would show up at that time. We would unload the trailer, set everything up. Service was at 9.30. We finished set up at like 9.28 most weeks. Uh, and I was a sweaty mess and I'm up there, hey everybody, man, it's so good to have you here. And I'm exhausted. And then as soon as it was over, we'd pack it up as fast as we can. And I remember in those moments thinking to ourselves, oh man, someday we're gonna have our own building. Someday we're gonna have a spot where we can just come in uh, and everything's set up the way that we left it. Uh, and then afterwards, instead of like everybody scrambling to get things back in a trailer and we're so exhausted that nobody wants to hang out and like do lunch together, that we'll be in a building where afterwards everybody will just kind of linger and then we'll all go out to eat together and it's gonna be community and it's gonna be fantastic. And then we got the building and you all still scatter as soon as service is over, it's amazing. Uh, you can't get out fast enough. But uh, in my mind, that like th- this idea of, creating something and community and the people that we were doing it with. Um, and it was a smaller group of people, but man, there was just relationships that um, like really withstood the test of time and, and were just like, I don't, just deep. It was great. It was a really, really good thing. So I remember reading this book at that time and what I underlined. And have you ever gone back and read something that you underlined or liked, or maybe a movie that you watched. And you're like, this is the best movie ever. You tell everybody for a long time, best movie ever, this movie, this movie. And then years later, you go back and you watch it, you realize it's not that good of a movie. And you realize, what was I going through at the time that made me think it was such a good movie or, or album or something like that, right? Now, this book is good. It's great. But I wanted to walk you through. It's kind of a different style of message today. I hope that's okay. Um, I wanted to walk you through a few things that I had underlined during that time. And with that backdrop in mind of what we were going through, I think that will speak to the community that was being developed and um, what I believe and value about like making a difference and how making a difference can, can look like. All right, so that's, that's kind of where we're at. Some of the things that I highlighted, number one was this, find something that you show up to by choice versus contractual agreement. What we had at that time were people showing up by choice, not by contractual agreement. Myself included, we, were, we, we paid nobody. It was just entirely, everyone was a volunteer at that point. And, and that was part of it. And, and the idea behind it, I think I underlined that in a big way because I was like, I'm seeing the benefit of this. I'm seeing the value of people who show up because they want to, not because they have to. Um, in that book, there's a story uh, from somebody in, in that he talks about, uh, an author, Jane Jacobs, wrote The Life and Death of Great American Cities, story on kind of the rise and fall of New York and LA and Chicago and all that kind of stuff. She writes about how she was looking at her second story window in Greenwich Village in New York City suburb in the 50s, and she noticed an older man struggling with a young girl, and she wondered, am I witnessing a kidnapping? Like, there's something going on. The girl goes rigid as as if she didn't want to go where the man was leading her, and she's going, do I need to call the police? What do I need to do? She said she's preparing to go downstairs to intervene when she notices that the couple who owned the butcher shop had emerged from their store. Then a man walked out from behind his newspaper stand. 
then a few people from the laundromat, so on and so forth and so on. And her line was this, that that man didn't know it at the moment, but he was being surrounded, right? Uh, and this community, and it turned out to be a dad who, whose father didn't want to go home quite yet, as it almost always turns out to be, but you're never quite sure, so you, you know, whatever. And if you're a dad, you've, you've been there before, you understand it. Her conclusion was simply this, that safety on the street and a healthy neighborhood is not kept mostly by the police. It is kept by the intricate, almost unconscious network of voluntary controls and standards among the people themselves. And I'll illustrate for you how this is still true today, even though uh, maybe perhaps less so, or it looks a little bit different. But I live in a neighborhood, we have what's called an HOA, and our HOA tends to be a little bit strict. Um, and that has kept some people out of the uh, of our neighborhood. It has made people who have used to live in the neighborhood want to leave the neighborhood. And it's also been a positive thing. If you've ever lived without an HOA, you've been like, I wish we had one. And people, so there's pros and cons to it, whatever. In our HOA, a little bit strict, there's a garbage can rule that you cannot store your garbage can on the outside of your house uh, where it is visible to anybody that's driving by. Um, which means that for the most part, unless you have built some sort of a little cage for it, which who does that, you have to store it in your garage, which in the winter isn't that big of a deal, although it does take up space. But in the summer, you guys, I don't know if you know this, if you're new here, it gets hot here. Uh, and your garages are, I don't know, 100 degrees and you store old food or in, it doesn't matter what you put in there. There's no way to keep this clean. And so your garage consistently smells like fish and everything else. And so it's not great. Uh, and so, uh, but they, they, they value that. That's an inconvenience to you. What's an inconvenience to us is being able to see your dirty garbage can. So the, I guess the, I don't know how this works, but in their reasoning, uh, the power of, uh, of us supersedes the power of you. All that to say, uh, there is a time in which you can take your garbage can out to the street on garbage day the night before. And then by such and such a time, you have to have it back in your house. You, you can ask me now, when is that such and such a time? I have no idea, but here's what's fun. We moved into somebody who is a next door neighbor who knows exactly when that such and such a time is and is, is you know, averse to, or not averse, but um, inclined to remind me uh, that this is not the time in which it's, you know, it's been out for since two and it needs to be in by four, you know, the rules. Okay, great. And so her name's Trudy. She's a little old German widow. And so I, she's nice. And we're trying to be nice. She's had a rough, rough go. So I'm, I am inclined to pull my garbage can in before I really want to, uh, with a certain finger down, uh, and revealed, but I always hide it behind the garbage can. So Trudy can't see it. Don't worry about it. As I pull my garbage can back in. Now I do this theoretically, I could get fined, uh, but by the HOA to have it out there, but that's not the reason why I pull it in. I don't do it because I'm theoretically going to get fined. I do it because we have a voluntary watchdog in our community and I don't want to disappoint Trudy. You know what I mean? And so that's why the garbage can gets get, gets pulled in uh, before it probably should be or whatever. So like, again, they could police it, but they don't really need to when you have somebody like Trudy uh, next door. Communities operate most effectively when its citizens are unpaid and show up by choice rather than systems where professionals are paid and show up by contractual agreement. I remember sitting there realizing this is absolutely true, that we were getting something from our volunteers when we were starting this church that we couldn't get if I had said, well, one, we couldn't afford a ton of people. So if I was like, I'm going to pay certain people or whatever, I, I, I wouldn't have worked out as well. And we, we know this, right? We can, we can and we should offload some of the high impact crime uh, uh, to our police force or to professionals. And we can always have that. But 
that is a contractual thing. And sometimes communities are best monitored by a voluntary thing. A related story with Trudy, our next door neighbor. Four years ago, I hired a painter, uh, a subcontractor to come out and to paint our house. And he pulls up in his truck, he does evaluation, he's coming back, he's doing all these kind of things. In the effort to begin to, in the, to leave, he drives over part of her lawn and hits a reflector that she has placed in the front corner of her lawn so that people do not drive on her lawn. So not only is that in place, but then she, you know, this happens. He gets out, feels bad, it's broken. He kind of pieces it back together, tapes it all up and puts it together. Um, she's not happy about that, rightfully so. Uh, and then in his next trip, the moron hits it again, which it just feels like, bro, you know, you, you saw her come out and, and he hits it again. She comes raging out of the garage, you know, shaking her fist, doing all kinds of stuff. He de begins to defend himself and, and is just yelling too. But yelling begins to occur. Uh, she eventually calls the cops. The cops show up because they're contractually obligated to. She's yelling at me because I hired an idiot uh, or whatever. Uh, the, then the cops do their thing, right? They're, they're trying to get the story and they're going, we're here because of what? Because of a reflector? Okay, just trying to process. How do you spell reflector out, right? Writing this thing down in their book. They pull her aside to get her version of the story. They pull him aside. They pull me aside. When they pull me aside, they go, now, just to be clear, we're here because he ran over a reflector in the yard. Is that right? And I can read it in his eyes. I can read it in his eyes. What he's saying in, without saying it is simply this, my God, people, are you for real right now? Like my, my, I, and, and I, I, I see that and I, I'm trying to like laugh it off because I know it's serious. It's serious to her and I'm trying to be a good neighbor. And I, I even, um, I even asked my wife uh, this week in the car, um, am I remembering this right? Because I don't want to like tell a false story. And I, I tend to embellish some things, but I don't want to lie outright. And then she's like, no, that's exactly what happened. And do you remember how ragged she looked when those cops showed up? It's like she went inside and did this and then came back outside with a broom and, and just wanted to be like, this, this man assaulted my reflector and he assaulted me. Like, it's like, that's what it kind of sort of felt like. And I'm, sh I'm sure this... These police officers are going, my God, people. And I, listen, I'm sure that like, I don't know what percentage, but I would guess it's a high percentage of what the police force in our community does is a bunch of people going, a bunch of them going, my God, people. Like uh, every shift, almost every shift. Now, 80% of the time, maybe it's this. And 20% uh, of the time, it's like, thanks for calling me. I'm glad we showed up. We just had some serious things and we need that. But in a community, so many, so many things could be solved if it was just, my God, people, like figure this thing out for yourself a little bit, right? The state has an important, this is, again, this is in this book that I, I had highlighted. It's not a religious book. It's not a church book. It's not a church planner's book at all. It's just healthy community sort of book. So take that in when you, when you hear this next one. The state has an important but incomplete role to play. They can provide services, but they cannot easily provide care. Or another way of saying it, the state can redistribute money to the poor, can build homeless shelters and daycare centers, the material platforms on which relationships can be built, but the state can't create the intimate relationships that build a full functioning person. They can build some structure, but what is really the secret sauce of all of it are people who show up or go in above and beyond on a voluntary way rather than contractually obligated. And for those of you who are teachers, right? And I'm guessing you know teachers or are a teacher or what we tend to have an overrepresentation of, of teachers in this church, and I'm not exactly sure why. But um, 
if you're a teacher, you already know this. You have been tasked with the unenviable sometimes of training up kids to be curious, but accountable, intuitive, but not aggressive, productive, not just consumptive uh, members of society. It's a huge task and requires what some would say to be a village. And yes, there are contractual agreements, there's unions, there's associations, those are all important, but you did not get into teaching because the money was good. That was not a motivation probably for you. You begin to you know, I, I, you do this out of a sense of a vocation or a calling or a, I just feel something like I'm supposed to do this. Now, sometimes that gets weeded out from you or that has been weeded out from some people. And now they're showing up contractually 180 days a year. Don't dare to ask me for 181. But for a, a lot of it, what you've seen and from a, a, from my side of things as a parent of students who are in our school district, it's almost like you can tell when there are teachers who are there because of the love of the job or because they are there. It's contractually, but it's there's a level that goes beyond that that's more than that. That they that they that they don't have to show up to these kids' you know football games or or uh, wrestling matches or whatever or these extra PTO meetings or this stay after hours or check a box or whatever they're voluntarily doing this to some degree. You can tell those teachers versus the ones that are not. And it's not just that the school districts that have the most money attract the best teachers. I mean, that helps. New buildings help. They do attract good teachers occasionally. But you know what is typically best at attraction attracting good teachers. And it's simply this, a culture of other good teachers. Good teachers want to work with other good teachers, with other good administrative things, right? It's just, I, if I'm going to be expected to go up and beyond, above and beyond, I want to be a part of a culture that prizes that, that celebrates that, that does that too, that it engages in that sort of thing. It's not all that different from the for-profit world. If you're a business manager, you want that from your employees, I'm going to pay you. You're going to get paid. But there's a difference between an employee who shows up contractually versus one that like, goes above and beyond and does something, that they give themselves to something, that they want to make a difference, not just fulfill a contract obligations in this, right? All right. That was the first one that was like, I remember reading that being like, that's really good. I want to make sure that our church fully understands this, that we don't think to ourselves, you know, someday we'll get a, we'll have enough money to be able to finance all kinds of staff to be able to accomplish some things. I wanted it to be something where it was like, eh, people show up on a voluntary way because I think that sometimes you get the best uh, work out of them, most fulfilling work out of them. Uh, number two, communities don't come together for the sake of community. They come together to build something together. The reality of community is that, you know, you rarely do engage in something uh, from, from a community standpoint just because you're like, I like community. Um, you do it because you're a lot of times trying to build something. If you've, um, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in the year, right? It was it's December, it's January, and you're like, you know what, this year, I'm gonna tackle this thing, I've never done this. It's a, it's a big deal, and, and um, a formidable uh, experiment or a practice of the private disciplines that we talked about in the last week. Um, the good news for you is that if you start from the left and go to the right, like most people read books, um, Genesis is a great book to start in. I mean, it's fast, man, it's fast moving. God creates the world in seven days in about 34 verses. He's just like, boom, there, speaks it into existence. Uh, it go, it's like you're reading this like 100 miles an hour. It slows down a little bit. It's like 70 miles an hour through the patriarchs where like, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these kind of stories and what they're going to do and who their family's about and what kind of battles are happening. But it's still pretty fast, right? 
And then you get to Exodus, it slows down a little bit, but um, you've got Moses and Pharaoh and the, and the plagues and the exit out of Egypt and, and wandering in the desert and stories of you know clouds by day and fire by night of God leading the people of Israel. It's still kind of moving pretty fast. And then all of a sudden, in the last third of the book of Exodus, it slows down to like a school zone. You know what I mean? Like it goes, it's like a screeching. And what happens in this moment is that God gives Moses instructions to the people for what they're gonna do, a project that they're gonna be a part of once they make their way into the new promised land. Hey, when you get there, here's the thing. I'm gonna have your, I'm gonna have the people build me a home. I've been a God who has shown up in visible ways of fire by night and cloud by day. I've shown up in some of the plagues. Like I've been very visible in terms of my um, activity within this people and, and being the, a God for them. What I want is a home to be able to dwell in. And not because he's like, I'm tired and I need a place to rest my head. That's not how God works. But a visible, um, we, we know kind of where we stand. We know where to go. They're coming out of a culture where temples were a thing. The temple was where you went to connect with the, the divine God or the de deity that your people grew up with. And so he's kind of working within the system of knowledge that they have. And so he's gonna address them and he's gonna talk about, here's what I want. So here, here's Exodus chapter 25, verses eight through 15. Then have them, he's talking to Moses, telling you're gonna be the mouthpiece to the people to make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, that's a fancy word uh, for like, um, not a temple, but like a step below a temple, right? A little bit more mobile and a little less permanent, but like still, uh, and all of its furnishings, exactly like the pattern that I will show you. Have them make an arc of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Then he goes on, cast four gold rings for it and fasten it to them. It's four feet with two rings on one side, two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides. It feels like an Ikea-like product, like instructions, doesn't it? I mean, this is how this reads. We go from uh, God looked at the, uh, the world and separated water from land. And then he said, moon, sky, you know, sun, and, and fill it with fishes and animals and, and breathe life into human beings. And then all of a sudden we're like, take an acacia wood, cut it in half, four cubits, gold rimmed, put the poles inside of it, carried the poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They're not to be removed. Uh, like all of these, these sort of things, this, uh, this is... This is very different. Like it would, it would feel so different to read this from what we've, we had been reading beforehand. We'd been reading a very active novel and now we're reading instructions. Um, cubits are confusing because this would be a, a, an Egyptian way of measuring things. It would be like the width of, an, uh, of a man's arms or whatever. Um, but here's what's also interesting in all of this. If you kind of look at this and realize what's being built, this tabernacle that's being built is all of, in modern day kind of measurement standards, 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. I mean, a third of the book of Exodus is being spent on instructions to build something that's smaller than the shop in some of your guys' backyards. Like that's a lot, that's a lot of territory or a lot of landscape within the biblical narrative to take up for something that's relatively pretty small, not insignificant, but at least relatively small. So why should so much attention be addressed to building such a minuscule or uh, small structure? Because these people are not yet a people, because this is part of the process of what God is doing to develop these people. He's pulling them out of a mindset of slavery, and he's trying to say to them, you are no longer what it is that you produce. 
You do not have a quota that is going to define your value as a human being. You're going to take a day off of doing work to try and really integrate this into your mind. You're going to protect a Sabbath day. You're not going to work on that day, even though you could. You're going to do it because you're going to rest on that day. And in that rest, you will realize tangibly, I am not simply a product of what I am able to produce. And then you're going to come into this world and you're going to build this tabernacle. You're going to do this as a, as a team together. Why? Because when you were in there, you were so focused on, as slaves, um, prov- uh, uh, doing like the, the bare minimum to get up that you were doing to pr- protect yourself and just survive because you got beat if you didn't provide enough or produce enough, that now you're going to do a project, but you're going to do it together and you're going to do it voluntarily because I'm trying to build a people. I'm trying to build a covenant nation that is going to be something that's significantly different than what they came out of. This is the building. He gave them a project because he knows There are things that happen. There are social dynamics that take place during a project. Teachers, you know this too. That's why you assign group projects together. Not because you think that, you know, they're they're bored and they need something to do. It's it's a way of of kind of integrating people, working with the social dynamics of the room and and learning from each other. You have a student who thinks they know everything, student thinks they know nothing. Let's get them together, realize everyone has different groups and strengths and whatever. This is how this is all playing out. He knows that this is how... The whole system works. This is how social dynamics work. When you give people a project, they learn together and they learn uh, how to relate to one another and and be and realize how much of life is interconnected in this way. Then uh, jumping forward a little bit, chapter 35, verses four through 10, this is towards the end of it. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what, you've, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who's willing to bring it to the Lord, an offering of gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins, dyed in red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood. They go on olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, all of the things that are gonna make up all of the things that uh, happen inside of this uh, tabernacle. You're going to voluntarily bring these forward as a sort of offering in a way. Verse 10, all who are skilled among you, or sorry, go back one, one, one thing real quick. All who are skilled among you are to come and to make everything the Lord has commanded. So not just items, but also the talents that you've been blessed with. You're going to come and you're going to do this. And here's their response. Then verse 20, the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing. Again, this is this voluntary thing. He does not command this from them. At this point, it's it's voluntary. You get to choose to be a part of this. And whose heart was moved, came to them and brought them an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all of its service and for the sacred uh, garments. In Exodus, when when you read through this, if you're reading through this uh, this year or doing whatever, here's what you're going to notice as well. In Exodus, the Israelites are never happier than they are when they're building the tabernacle. That this, when they're doing this voluntarily, later on, they're going to be bickering. They're going to be fighting against one another, both you know, intertribal fighting. Um, they're going to argue about who gets what land. Um, they're going to argue about, um, gosh, we're never provided the things. we were. Be- maybe life was better back in Egypt. Uh, we're going to listen to the rabble talk about how things were better back then. And, they're never happier when they're doing this project. Why? Because that's how community sort of things work. Get a project, you'll see the things come together. Thirdly, one of the last things that I highlighted, or one, the last thing that I'll talk about in this one, was, was this, when a community begins to build together, they don't just create new stuff, they create new norms and traditions. 
You find them saying, this is something that we do. Our culture does this. This is what we're about. The nation of Israel begins, this is what we're about. Or in your line of work, in your business place, you have cult- there's a culture. There's, whether good or bad, it doesn't matter. But your, your school, your, your organization, your nonprofit, your whatever it is that you work at has a culture, a way of doing things. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. But it's all been shaped by people who've tackled some things together and are working together in community. It hasn't always been what we do. At some point, if it's really, really good, I'm glad it feels like that, but there's been a foundation that's been laid to that. That's been one of the struggles for us as a leadership team is I feel like we got that naturally um, when we first started the church of everybody feeling like I'm I'm coming to this voluntarily and it's been a little bit harder to kind of navigate that. Not that I want to go back. I don't want to go back to a school. I swear to you, I swear I don't. Um, But how do you recreate some of that? How do you keep that culture alive. And I know that sometimes when it's really, really good, it feels really simple, but it's actually an incredibly complex and far from easy to kind of navigate that. Interesting that the norms of the early church were, uh, were moved toward, they had a culture of, of being first responders in tragedies and a culture of running into a city when plague would, would, would happen, when everybody else was running out. Um, and that the culture of the church has been the church can help when perhaps other structures, when other governments that are providing platforms can't provide care. But one of the things that the church has been pretty dang good at for centuries upon centuries since its inception is this idea of care, which is why secular city organizations approach churches like ours and say, we have this thing that's going on. Perhaps the church can help. I love that. That doesn't come by accident. It takes a lot of hard work to be able to do that. Uh, and so uh, that kind of factors into, I think, this idea of making a difference. All right. Um, all right. With that as the backdrop, those are some of the highlights. That's, that's just a lot of, uh, of stuff. I have a few kind of quick comments about uh, random thoughts on community that might help you and uh, are sure, for sure rattle around in my brain in terms of community and what it would look like for me to take this through the lens of the way of Jesus and begin to apply it and move forward in this. Uh, number one is that this, there's always a balance between self and society. In some ages, the pressures of the group become stifling and crush the self. And individuals feel a desperate need to break free and express their individuality, right? What you, what you see, what you saw come out of World War II in, in communism in, in Russia at that time was like this uh, suppression of self. You adapt, you become one of all. It's, nobody's better than any of us. We're all equal or whatever, right? And there's like this, this, this need to kind of break through and be like, no, no, there's individual stuff that's in there. But here's the thing about this. We are not in that age. Our, our, that's not the water that we swim in. The water that we swim in is based on hyper-individualism. Uh, in our age, the self is inflated. The collective is weak. We've swung t- way too far in the direction of individualism. We have a loss of connection in the crisis of solidarity. We go through, uh, we go through a pandemic where it's forced us to be like kind of shut off and, and individualized. And then we get there and we like, I don't even, I feel so disconnected. I feel so, we, go, we ebb into tribalism. Everything becomes a, a, an us versus them sort of thing. We feel lonely. We're lonelier than ever. We're more interconnected via the internet than we've ever in any other era of, of history. And yet we feel like nobody really knows us and we don't really know anybody. We know versions of them. We know images, projections of them, but not them really. And the primary question of our time is simply this, what can I do to make myself happy? We go through life just like insatiably going after what can I do to make myself happy? Maybe if I buy this, go here, do this, take this picture for the gram, do all the kinds of stuff. 
obligations to others uh, and Jesus' admonitions to die to self, they just don't work for us anymore. Instead, we operate with a drive to excel, to make a mark in the world, financial independence, to win, to be better than others, right? I mean, all of these things that we would say um, uh, when we think of kind of making a difference, what, what, what's the, why make a difference? Well, because we ought to and it'll look good and we'll feel better about ourselves as a result of it. It'll bring a sense, in a sense, happiness to ourselves. Hyper-individualism creates isolated, self-interested yearners who sense that something is missing from their lives, but they can't even begin to name what it is. If you've ever yearned for something to be different about this, I have friends, I have community, but something's missing from this. Well, what is it? I don't know. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something's wrong in this way. The love that we're most familiar with is conditional love. Produce and I will love you or keep hiring you. Achieve and I will praise you. That life is this endless game of contractual relationships, even to the point of marriage feels like I'm married as long as this continues to work for me and for you. Uh, and Brooks says this in the second mountain book, when you build a whole society in an overly thin view of human nature, you wind up with a dehumanized culture in which people are starved of the thing that they yearn for most deeply. When you build an entire culture around thin, thin a thinness, then what you see and what you re- the result, the consequence of it is a people who are starved of the things that they craved the most deeply. A person on the flip side, a person guided by relationalism who strives to or resolve, not strives, but resolves to make a difference, recognizes a few things. One, life is more connected than I realize, that my success is more connected than I realize, my personal happiness is more dependent on others than I realize, that it's not about independence from, but like I'm, I'm making deep commitments to people. I'm trying to make a difference, not because I'm achieving some level of something, but I want to I want to give myself away to a certain extent because I'm realizing how interconnected this really, really is. Relationalists measure their lives with the quality of their relationships and the quality of our service to those relationships. The good life is marked by making commitments and staying faithful to those commitments. The hyper-individualist operates by straightforward logic. I make myself strong. I get what I want. The alternative, the option uh, to do something different in that way is the relationalist operates by the inverse log, uh, logic. I possess only when I give, I lose myself to find myself, and when I surrender to something great, that's when I'm the strongest and I'm the most powerful. Or, as a really famous Jewish rabbi once said, to find myself, to live, to live, uh, to die to myself is to, to live. To lose myself is to find myself. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, the interesting thing about it, I put a couple of cross-reference verses so that you can see those exact words play out. But what you'll look at is if you type in something like this into Google are countless and countless phrases of Jesus saying things like this. And then also the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, almost all the New Testament writers saying a version of this, daily taking up our cross, dying to ourself, uh, is, is to do this. I, I've, uh, P- uh, Peter or uh, Paul uh, writing about, if you'll just follow in the footsteps and, and, and um, follow a savior who uh, humbled himself to be obedient, even to obedience to death upon a cross, who made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Like all of these, these types of language, this is constant, almost as if when they're sitting down to be like, what did Jesus talk about and live out? Something like this all of the time. That this, what we're struggling with is not a 21st century American problem that we have because we just have too much money and too much time on our hands. This has been a human problem for a long time and Jesus had the solution so long ago. Listen, you make a difference by recognizing that it's not about achievement. 
It's not about isolationism. It's not about individualism. It's about interconnecting myself into a web of people and giving myself away, making commitments, living up to those, resolving to give myself away, to die to myself daily and to do things a little bit different. And lastly, as an encouragement thing to you, and just as your pastor, just somebody who's processing through this myself, my encouragement to you would be this. I'm closing with this and we'll do communion in a second. Make it particular. Make it particular. I wanna be a better, I wanna be better at giving myself away. Good, how? What are you doing? I wanna be a more generous person. Cool, what are you doing? What, what is it? Who are you committing yourself to? Don't commit to this abstract notion of community. Be committed to a specific community. The, these people, this ministry, this family, it doesn't even have to be this church. I, don't, I really don't care. I, I, I want to be a place that's a safe place to do it, but you find it. Find a place, find somewhere where you show up voluntarily, or you go above and beyond voluntarily, not out of contractual obligation. Your life is too obsessed with contractual obligations. We need them. They're, they're sufficient. There's a place for them. It's a platform for it, but care doesn't happen there, guys. It doesn't, life's meaning isn't found in that. It pays bills and keeps the roof over your head and, and all that stuff. I, I, I understand, but you need, I need, we need a place, an avenue, an outlet, a voluntary association with this. It holds us accountable. It, keep, it, it, it keeps us, it shapes uh, us. It brings, helps us to realize how interconnected life is. It makes me take an inventory of what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, why I need other people, what I'm good at in helping other people out. It's critically important to be able to make these things a reality for us. So I want you, I want to resolve to make a difference, but I don't want it to be abstract. I want it to be specific. I wanna give myself away. I want you to give yourself away. I want you to grow spiritually. I want you to find your people and I wanna be a place that encourages those things for you. At this time, I'm gonna invite the band. They're coming up. They're gonna lead us in one last song. It's gonna be a communion song. It's gonna be, uh, if you've never been a part of uh, a communion at Eastlake before, um, there's explanation of what we believe about what it is and uh, everyone's invited, not obligated. You're gonna stand in just a second and slip out of your seat or stay where you're at. It doesn't matter. You're gonna come to the front, grab uh, a little cup with a wafer on top and grape juice uh, underneath. Make your way back to the seat on, on your own, either as a family together or perhaps just by yourself. Uh, walk yourself through that. And then uh, one final song to reflect on it. Um, and, uh, and then I'll come up at the very end and do a formal dismissal. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your son who uh, made this a pathway, an option, made this a reality, pointed us towards this way, invited us into this, modeled this to a level that we could only ever hope to, like, barely sniff. I mean, you know, I just, the, the, when he says, take up your cross daily, he literally picked up a cross. We just choose to inconvenience ourselves or we, we just choose the high road or we choose to, uh, to lose resources or time for the sake of somebody else or whatever. I mean, it's, it's proverbial for us. It was actual for him. We celebrate that through communion. We ask that you give us the wisdom to be able to navigate what this kind of looks like. What does it mean if I resolve to make a difference? What is being asked of me? <clears throat> And may we take those steps. May we recognize the value of it. Grow from that. May you, may you shape us into what you called us to be. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.